0: Uh, this is so exciting. Welcome to the very first Red Hacks Live, where the world transformed. What a better place to start this. Um, if you follow the podcast, you might recognize my voice. My name is Joanne Ramiro, and I am the host of Red Hacks, a uh, series of conversations about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world. And um, For those of you who have not yet had the delight to get acquainted with the show, Red Hacks is part of the Politics Theory Other podcast, and our second season has technically just started recording today, Uh, so await new episodes any moment now, Um, guests on the show on season one have included my friend, colleague mentor Paul Mason, who features very heavily on the TWT program, uh, renowned uh, photojournalist Jess Heard, and Riley Quinn, the host of the left's favorite surrealist podcast, Trash Future, which also has a live recording tomorrow, no longer here, uh, somewhere else, I don't recall the venue, you check it out on the program, but it's at around 1 p.m., so I'm already doing shout-outs here. I'm not contractually obliged to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. To gain access to the whole uh, Red Hacks first season, uh, as well as all the usual politics theory other episodes, you should definitely follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to every single channel we have out there. It's usually at PaulTheoryOther. And you can and certainly should subscribe to the iTunes version of that and leave a review. All the usual disclaimers apply. And if you're tweeting this show right now, Be sure to tag uh, TWT, uh, at TWT underscore now. Oh there's an interesting sound, yeah. Look, I know I'm hot, but not that hot, okay? Like, chill out. Um, And uh, do please hashtag Red Hacks Live, which obviously pertains to this particular show. Tonight's show is a little different from the usual uh, podcast version, firstly because we have not just one but three incredible guests who I'll be introducing imminently, but also we will be including some questions from the audience that have been sent in advance, uh, a little bit like question time, your very own people's question time, if you will, Um, and we'll also have a sort of the usual open to the floor question and answer at the end, so don't worry if you haven't sent questions in a few weeks ago, you can do so at the end, as per usual. I should add at this point that the show is being recorded, Uh, and so... If you want to heckle me, please keep it kind of quiet so that the people who are going to listen to this later on uh, can have an amazing experience. Um, or until we reach the Q&A, at that point, we'll stop recording. Um, yeah, that's about all the you know usual disclaimers apply, fire exits over there, so if anything happens. And so with further ado, let me introduce to you our amazing guest for tonight, Kimberly McIntosh, to my far right, but not politically, the usual joke, haha, is a colonist for for the incredibly inspiring Galdam magazine, where she writes about sex and racism in the city. Go girl. And she also writes for The Guardian, The Metro, and The Washington Post. Give her a round of applause. Yeah. Right next to Kimberly, there's Simon Childs, who's the Home Affairs Editor at Vice UK. He was involved with a long struggle to get the National Union of Journalists, or NUJ, recognized at Vice, which was finally victorious in July this year. Hooray! He He writes a lot about social movements and grassroots politics. That's how we met many, many years ago now. And to my immediate right needs of introduction. Owen Jones, uh, who is a columnist for The Guardian, author of Childs and the Establishment, commentator in chief of all things labor. He has also written prolifically about media bias and who's been a good friend for many, many years. Thank you all of you for coming. (laughs) Amazing. So, we're going to start off with a question from the audience. We're going to kick it off that way. I'll be asking some questions. We'll keep it conversationally. So, you know, like I want you guys to feel like really comfortable with this as much as us on the panel. The first question comes from Oli, who's a young journalist and an avid listener to Red Hacks. Oli, over there, if we could get him a microphone to kick off the discussion.
1: Uh, so my question is, as left-wing journalists, you operate in a very neoliberal industry, which reinforces neoliberal ideology and is structured as an insider's club. How do you avoid uh, compromising your principles in such an environment?
0: Anyone want to start with that? Owen, oh, you work for The theguardian.inc. Do, <laughs> yeah. do you want to start off with that?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, so... Uh, yeah, I think the thing we need to understand about the media is we're often told by uh, its the defenders of its current incarnation that we have the free press. And we have a free press in the sense the government doesn't directly control it, we're not North Korea. Not the most ambitious place to start, by the way. But instead, most of the British media is owned by a very small group of rich media oligarchs who define the terms of what they would call the national conversation. So they are, they, they, if you like, they're like the patrol guards of what's acceptable and what isn't. And uh, they will uh, demonise and attack ideas and those who champion those ideas that challenge a status quo from which they directly uh, profit. Um, they, in a pandemic sense, instead of holding vested interest or account often, there are great journalists at an individual level who obviously do do that, But what we see is the relentless scapegoating of minorities, Muslims, refugees and migrants often intentionally to divert uh, responsibility away from those at the top of society. Um, And the problem we have, so then you have, for example, the BBC and the BBC firstly is uh, uh, a study by Cardiff University academics found... Uh, a few years ago, uh, is massively weighted towards establishment voices. So, uh, for example, one study showed a few years ago, I'm sure it hasn't dramatically improved, the BBC Six O'Clock News would interview business leaders so-called more than uh, uh, 20 times or so more than trade union leaders who were democratic leaders of the biggest democratic movement of the country representing six million workers uh, during the financial crash they would interview bankers uh, as though they were witnesses rather than uh, the uh, you know as as uh, as exactly there to be prosecuted. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the winter of discontent, in uh, which unions were obviously demonised? You didn't get trade union leaders on national radio. Going, so what's going on then? What's the strike all about? You're the expert. You tell us. Um, and that's what they did with 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 the banks. And what the other thing that happens with the BBC is. What they will do, and you will hear this with the Today programme and other programmes, they they will shape their agenda around the front pages of the main newspapers who are overwhelmingly editorially, of course, weighted uh, to... Uh, the right now for my own experience so i started writing a column for the independent at the beginning of 2012 and then the guardian in 2014 and before me i suppose in terms of the new left journalist the one of the first kind of uh, journalists who got a platform was laurie penny who's a uh, left-wing feminist who kind of came to prominence during the student movement and what i think happened in that period was there was a sense of um you know a sense that by certain publications an acceptance that there was a political shift going on um, and in some way they they had to uh, nod to it, obviously for purely commercial purposes. Um, and the reason w- with myself as someone who didn't want to be a journalist, I wrote a book about class at a time when people were just ready to talk about class again and so because of that it did much better than anyone expected. And then I was asked to write to different newspapers about the book and its themes and go on TV to talk about it, and then they said, will you come back and talk about other things? And then I ended up at the Indy and then at the Guardian. And I suppose the difficulty is it, it is uh, an excruciatingly um, suffocating, I mean, it's difficult without sounding like, I don't know, like little violin, I'm going through therapy here. Uh, so uh, I'm not doing this as a, hit. I, I'm trying to explain it just from my own lived experience. Um, which is it, it's you know it is like swimming against a, a very strong tide, and particularly before twenty fifteen, when I suppose I was treated as the token lefty in the in, in the British media, and that has changed to a degree. The left is dramatic drastically underrepresented uh in the British media. Uh forty percent of the electorate voted for a left-wing Labour Party supporting public ownership of utilities and so on. And if you look at the polling You know, polling shows 75 to 80% of people support the nationalisation of key utilities. That's treated as a fringe extreme idea in most of the media. Uh, You know, in terms of taxation, uh, millions of Britons are to the left of the current Labour Party on tax, uh, let alone in the Miliband era. Um, So, you know, these ideas are a consensus amongst the British public, but not within the British media are treated as a joke. So whenever you'd go on TV, there's always that sense of... um, uh, you know, kind of this is some a kind of laughable, ridiculous, childish notion, and we've allowed you to sit at the grown ups' table for a bit. Um, and uh, but but we will, you know, we we will, you know, because the the kind of centre ground, if you like, of the BBC, and this was put to me by a senior news presenter at the BBC, is Blairite, right? socially liberal, economically liberal. So the reason they will say, and this is this false, this is this logical fallacy, if we're being attacked by left and right then We're neutral, uh, you know, it's like with criminal justice. So, for example, you'll say, Well, there are some who say the justice system is pandemically racist and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and completely fails on its own terms and is punitive. There are others, uh, who say it's, uh, it's, it's actually not, not punitive enough, and therefore, it, in its current incarnation, it's doing its job right. Obviously, that's a logical fallacy, it doesn't make any sense. And the reason. The right will attack the BBC is twofold firstly because yes it 's true on issues on kind of social liberalism they will deviate from the Daily Mail whilst on the structure of society in, in terms of in, in terms of capitalism or neoliberalism they 're very comfortable and support its current uh, structure and also the right are very good at policing the BBC uh, in the way that the left hasn 't been certainly until recently when the left got more of a platform um, so I think from my own perspective what what you know they they will close ranks uh the they don't uh, if you try and criticize the structure of the media it's like you've gone up to every senior journalist and told uh them to you know their their mother to fuck off or something i mean that's how they will behave it's like the most personal how how could you you know you know just by talking about the fact the media is a dominated by media oligarchs b completely unrepresentative of british public opinion and uh, uh, no sorry unrepresentative of 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 the uh, of of class composition, of race, of gender. Um you know, I, I when I pointed just that basic fact out, I got the potted biographies of every single senior journalist in Britain. Uh, it was like the four Yorkshireman sketch, but not actually funny, and uh, and 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 there was just that, you know that. It, it, I I just think, from my own perspective, it's it, There's been more of a closing ranks in the last two years. That even though they felt obliged to give, you know, if you look at Ash Sarkar, the rise of leftist commentators like that. There was a sense of we were having this nice, polite dinner party where we would have our differences in very narrow confines and this bunch of hooligans have just invaded who started throwing food around, uh, who don't abide by the etiquette and saying you know extreme things. And so there's a closing ranks that constantly takes place in an effort to make those who dissent from the status quo feel as uncomfortable and as insecure as possible. And because of how precarious journalism has become, that makes people even more... Worried that if they were to deviate in any way from the status quo, and I'm talking about people not on the radical left, then they they will fear for their employment and their livelihoods.
0: Can I ask you, Kimberly, how how this has you know resonated what what Owen is saying now with your own experience?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, I feel I'm quite lucky in a sense because one, writing for Gal Dem, it's straight up. It says it's anti-capitalist so I don't really have to worry as much about the constraints with traditional media but I do write for um mainstream publications as well but my it's not my full-time employment and so that is a privilege that I have I work um for a racial justice organization so I don't have to fear that I'm not going to be able to cover my rent um because I don't have an article ready to pitch so it means that I'm able to be a lot more choosy about the institutions that I write for and what I write about but what I don't have as much control over is if I have to go on broadcast media as part of my salaried employment Um, and then I'm hugely (coughs) constrained by the way that race is talked about by mainstream institutions so we have a lot of um, like false equivalences I own was talking about where they'll say, today the topic is, are gollywogs racist? And then they'll have someone who is like, no, gollywogs are not racist. I've had gollywogs since I was six years old. Nothing racist about them, and that's what I say. And then they'll try and get one of us to go on there and be like, well, I mean, they are racist, and this is why they're racist. But that whole debate is actually pointless, because we're not talking about structural inequality, which is what's actually important. And then you're moving the conversation away to frivolous topics, which then reinforces the idea that um, talking about race and racism is actually about a culture war, it's about PC gone mad, and then you're reinforcing um, this nonsense conversation. Um, But I've actually been quite lucky, again, is that at work we're thinking about who does that really benefit and who is that for? So I'm able to turn those opportunities down now. So this week we had Justin Trudeau. He's done blackface loads of times. And, you know, I get... um, (laughs) You know, that's not great. You know, it's not great. (laughs) But it is what it is. Do I want to go on... I won't name the outlets, but do I want to go on broadcast media and have that discussion? But it's... Thinking about, do you know, what, whose cause am I advancing by going on there and talking about just and blackface? Can I use that to talk about wider issues, such as structural racism? Maybe, but it's quite difficult. And so then it's measuring up, is it worth it? Plus factoring in that I'm going to get trolled online as well by people saying, oh, you know, you can't say anything anymore, blah, blah, blah is it worth it for my mental health? Is it worth it for the message I want to get across? Not really. And so I would just say no to that. But I understand that that's coming from a position where I'm able to turn down opportunities. And if you're starting out in your career and you have to pay your rent, you might not be able to stick to those principles in the same way. Do you feel, asking this
0: very particularly to you as a woman of colour, that... Uh, particularly producers of certain shows, uh, both on radio as on television, uh, tend to be sort of taking you in sort of, not just a token, which would be to be expected, but also like in a sort of very lazy sort of, oh, this is the first uh, woman of color who writes about issues of race and class and journalism, so I'll just invite you along then, kind of, kind of process of laziness. Because I've had people asking me as a, a white woman, to go and comment on questions of race. And I said, like, there's so many amazing people in our community who write about, and I don't usually write about race. So, like, who write about this, just do a little bit of your homework, please. How, how do you engage with that when, when it's confronted with you? And you don't want to talk about race for once, you know? Like, when it's sort of the reverse situation. Like, as you said, sometimes you just say no, but what do you do when you feel like the topic needs to be talked about? Do you send them someone else? Do you lecture them? Do you harangue the producer and say, like, do your freaking homework? How do you deal with it?
3: I wish I could harangue, but I I can't do that. If only, but there is extreme laziness. Like once your name's on a list, yeah. you're on that list. Exactly. So you're on a couple of lists, and then every time something that's like vaguely to do with race, so much Meghan Markle, so much Meghan Markle, and she is facing a lot, you know, a lot of racism. And sometimes you can use that as a hook. I've done it before. I've written Guardian opinion about Meghan Markle. Um, And someone emailed me after to say that it changed his mind, actually. So I think there is a space for using um, something in popular culture to make a, a wider point. But there is a huge laziness of just going to the same people. And I know that producers are under a lot of pressure to find someone very quickly. But I'm a big proponent of passing the mic. So if you do know someone else who's better placed, just giving that name... So they did it once for Newsnight. They were trying to find someone to talk about um, asylum amnesties. And I don't work on asylum at all. And I did feel pressure to go on because it would be representing my organisation. That's a huge deal to be on Newsnight. But I spoke to my boss about it and he said, if you're not comfortable, don't do it. I mean, I'm not going to... um, do well at it. It's not my subject area. And there are lots of other people that they could speak to, but they needed, it was an all male, all white panel. So they were just desperate. I mean,
0: that's already, a, that shows already a, a problem there from the beginning.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the worst form of identity politics. I know the right way is going on and on about identity politics, but this is one of the few times that the, it's not a nonsense phrase. It is actually describing a process where someone who doesn't even know about a topic and isn't the best is being picked because there were no other women and no people of colour on the panel and I'm the only name they could think of at that time because I was talking about the Windrush scandal but Windrush is nothing to do with asylum so I'm not an expert on that so I'm definitely a fan of giving them the name of an expert.
0: Brilliant. This leads well into a question that was actually uh, sent to you, Simon. It It was the only question that was directed at someone because you work for Vice. Um, And so someone called Lauren sent me a question about how do you um, reconcile being an editor at a publication that is, one could argue, or has been criticized for being ultra-capitalist, you know, Vice Media at large and also at times criticized for sort of jumping on grassroots movements and, and activism movements, whilst at the same time, obviously you as someone on the left wanting to, and as an editor as well, as the power to commission and also wanting to put forward that, that, that message through. So how do you, how do you reconcile the two? Yeah.
4: Uh, that's a really nice, tough question to start with. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Um, I think like a lot of, this stuff to do with um, actually, can I sort of answer the original question first? Yeah, of first? course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. I had a sort of point about like, um, you know, how do you be a political journalist in this world that's very sort of, you, you're in this, you have to be in this tent, and if you're not in this tent, then then it doesn't count. And how do you navigate that? I think you kind of don't, you don't have, you don't have to be in that like Westminster like lobby like crew to to do it. Like, there's so much stuff like political stuff going on outside Westminster that's really interesting to report about. And I guess a lot of the a lot of the thing about that kind of Westminster lobby style journalism is that there's a whole load of compromises you're making by entering it. So to give an example, um in when was the Scottish independence referendum, two thousand fifteen? Um I got a call from the cabinet office. I guess they were like sussing out vice as this like new media thing, being like, Do you want to interview Danny Alexander, who is like Lib Dem minister who was obviously backing the like stay together campaign. And I was kind of like, yeah, sure. But I was quite daunted because he's quite a sort of boring character and I didn't know (laughs) how I was going to handle it. And then I was going to go and meet him in Glasgow. And I thought, okay, that's fine. I can get some colour. I can, like, talk to people in Glasgow and get their opinions and then, like, thread it through in this, like, well-written piece. And then um, the day came and then he was going to be in Inverness and I looked at, like, the transport and it was impossible. So then I had to do a phono with him. So no no colour, no leaving, like, shortage, just... Like, just a phone conversation with the minister giving, like, very, like, by-rote, government-approved lines. And I was like, how do I how do I make that good or interesting? And I eventually just... I, I just wrote it up. And this this was also... It wasn't me being, like, super, like, radical. It was also just, like, naivety on my part. But I just wrote it up, like, basically, as I just told you. Like, so, I got this offer. I didn't know what to do. Daniel Alexander's quite boring. Anyway, here was, here was the interview. <laughs> I just wrote it up like that. And uh, I think... And, and also, I kind of concluded that, like, basically, you know... I was sort of, for, you know, I wasn't particularly into independence, but that either way, he was the wrong person to be trying to keep any country together because he was doing austerity at that point. So why would anyone want to like listen to him? And I basically wrote it up like that, and I got this call from the cabinet office being like, "What, what are you doing?" And I was like, th- "This." I was actually being naive. I was like, "What, what do you mean?" And they were like, "You've written that the cabinet office offered you this interview," and I was like. Well, that's what happened. And they were like, no one writes about us. Like, w- w- like no no one says that we exist in that way. And I was like, okay. And they were like, so can you change it? And I was like, no. And, and they were like, well, can you change the headline? And I was like, not, not really. And then, presumably, you know, I've never got offered of an interview with the government minister <laughs> again, but, like, that's fine because there's other stuff to write about. And, you know, if you're going to go into getting... Interviews with cabinet ministers the whole time. There's a, there's a sort of quid pro quo that mm. you're not going to them, call them boring and like insult them in your interview. Like not not insult them, but like be harshly critical of them in your interview. Can um, I
0: can I ask a question at that point? Just because it feels that that is a sort of privilege that's also given to certain characters within uh, certain broadcasters, like say BBC journalists have the are the only ones who have the right to actually grill. Andrew Marr can grill someone in the cabinet and then all of a sudden you're you're not allowed to and do you think that these bigger journalists are already entering some sort of unspoken agreement in that sense
4: yeah definitely because you know if you're if you're like extremely harsh then they're not going to you're not going to be top of their list the next Mm. time and it's fairly straightforward and i guess i I suppose there's obviously a place for interviewing cabinet ministers but Mm. in terms of how how does an individual journalist navigate that i would just say you don't have to go down that route Mm. like you don't have to um, to move on to your question about what was it like?
0: So how do, how do you reconcile having a company, an employer, ultimately that you feel there is a criticism from the left about sure. the space that they occupy, but at the same time you obviously as an editor want to push a certain line?
4: Yeah, uh, I mean I know this
0: happens in all sorts of different organizations, but you're you're the editor on the panel, so that's that's why I can. Yeah, that.
4: yeah. Uh, well, I think I think you know I see uh, throughout the media I see a lot of journalists with, like, really good intentions and, like, wanting to be a journalist for all the best reasons and, like, hold power to account and stuff. Um, and then, the, you know, the the media is, as an industry is in a not very good place and people are individually having to make all kinds of moral compromises and should I work for this company, should I work for that company, and it's, like, mm-hmm. extremely, extremely tough for people. Mm-hmm. And the way I sort of have... Try to navigate that at least is by joining a union with my colleagues because I think these decisions are not best made by like individual questions of morality because like everyone's got their own sort of moral red lines and there should be red lines like I'm not I don't think you should work for the sun or whatever Mm-mm. but but beyond that it all gets really messy and the like the name r-
0: that shall not be spoken
4: right but we're, we're, we're like working in this we're working in an industry that is like full of compromise and it is really tough But I just think, like, the way to address those questions is collectively. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I mean, as should be, like, obvious to anyone on the left.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. On that note, let's pass on to the next uh, question from the audience. I have, we have another journalist in the audience, is a transpontine comrade, Sarah Jeffy, who has a question that she pre-prepared. So if somebody could pass the mic to Sarah, that would be great. Oh,
3: I'm going to... Try not to spill my drink when I stand up
0: here. Um, Sarah is also on season two of Red Hacks. We recorded it today.
3: And I get to talk more. Um, So I'm a journalist that covers social movements. This is a thing I struggle with, so I'm going to force you all to struggle with it too, which is when you're covering movements that you are broadly supportive of, how do you make decisions about what you write about and what you, frankly, keep for the movement? What secrets do you keep?
0: Uh... Simon, do you, do you want to start off with that? Because you do cover... I mean, we met originally yeah. during the time, the auspicious time of the student movement.
4: Yeah. Um, another tough question. Um, all the
0: questions <laughs> on Red Hacks are tough, my I feel my like friend. all these questions are either
4: going to get me fired or, like, cancelled on the left. But, um, or both. Or both, yeah. Um, I feel... Personally, yeah, I feel like there should really be more of a space in the media for journalism that writes about the left from a critical place but not not like criticizing the left like you know like daily mail like oh my god it's a red scare but like critically engaging with the left mm. more and i feel like there's not enough of that and so yeah i don't know like i guess you know individual decisions about what what you do or do not write are obviously down to the story and I don't know, not wanting to screw someone over, or, or deciding that that is necessary to do that for a story, or whatever. But I think, yeah, basically, there, there should be, I think there should be more writing f- of, from the left that is like critical of it, but in a like comradely way, or like a non non trying to destroy it way.
0: Yeah, I feel like you want to come in. Wanna...
2: Yeah, it's really tough because you know, I mean, obviously, I, I speak as an opinion writer, and there are lots of opinion writers who I would regard as aligned with with power and with the status quo. And I feel that is covered um, amply. Um, And if you have a platform uh, in which you are sympathetic to these movements, then you are in a very marginalised position in the British media. And you end up with a double... You end up with various dangers, which is, A, there's already an all-out war against these struggles and movements. and, 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 you know, as well as that, the danger of them going, ah, even this lefty columnist has said something about this struggle, about that, you know, that, that, and that that will be kind of held up uh, across the media as a consequence. I mean, it's difficult. I remember when Occupy happened and I would write columns supporting Occupy. Occupy was a very important moment, I thought. Occupy helped um, really popularise that sense of uh, this was a crisis caused by those at the top, the 1%, and uh, in which vast majority, the 99%, I'd probably quibble with that statistic, but let's not get more down to that. But that the vast majority had, had been forced to pay the consequences for. And uh, but at the same time, my own view was that a movement like that could only succeed if it had an accountable leadership and direction. And that's the political tradition that I'm from. That it wasn't enough simply, you know, it was it it was raising public consciousness and it did and you know i remember that you'd go on tv or radio and they'd go well what's this even achieving and i, I would say i'm literally on television talking about capitalism uh you know and, and so that in itself it opens up that debate in that political space and i think a lot of the political shifts in this country would have been impossible without the student movement where we met for example um or, or without you know uk on cop without the anti war movement before that uh, without the anti austerity movement this all created space uh, which then, but laid the basis for political shifts, but you know I remember when I wrote about occupy and I, I I wrote very you know as as someone very openly aligned with that struggle, but also had that not well, not criticism, it was just me talking about strategy and tactics. Um, about the need for having a coherent alternative, that it wasn't enough to critique the system, you had to have an alternative. But that upset people, uh, some people, not most people. Do you feel people. that's happening
0: with, for instance, Extinction Rebellion and the way that we're covering or not covering Extinction Rebellion, the way that Extinction Rebellion interacts with other movements on the left and we as journalists interact with
2: them. That is a really, really important point because... So Extinction Rebellion, obviously, predictably, had media onslaught and attack. You'd get the likes of Adam Bolton on Sky News calling them fascists. Uh, Just utterly ludicrous conversations. But at the same time, there were critiques from the left. There were critiques, for example, about uh, the casual way they would call for uh, for arrested. getting arrested without looking at the interaction between our racist justice system and the experience of people of colour. Now, do you then say, well, you're piling in now against in a in a media onslaught against uh, a struggle which is about saving humanity from extinction? Well, I don't think that's fair or reasonable. And I, so you have to have that debate, um, you know, and and it's one thing to be there as one of the few people defending and making the case from conviction, especially if you're an opinion writer, about those struggles, but that doesn't mean you just airbrush out of existence those problems that you have, as long as it's within that context. But it is very difficult, because when you see um, a movement being piled piled on, like Extinction Rebellion, and you almost feel a democratic responsibility in that situation to try and Push back because you kind of think, well, if, if 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 people like myself with a platform don't do that, then that then not many people will, and so you've got to make you've got to take a balanced position on that, and uh, you know you might not get it right, but it is important. What I would do on Extinction Rebellion is I just signal boosted people of colour who made those critiques, and I think it would have been ridiculous. And there was this view I remember, like I, I come from a Trotskyist family, and there was this crude interpretation of Trotskyism in which was we will deal with women's rights and the liberation of minorities after the revolution. You know, I remember there was this, you know, the senior Trotsky's figure was asked by a woman comrade about, you know, what will be, how will we get the liberation of women? Um, uh, under socialism, and he said, that's a very interesting question. Put on the kettle, and I'll I'll tell you afterwards. And and it's just, it's that sense of, you know, kind of, what, what, are we going to throw people under a bus uh, in the name of the struggle? Of course not. So I think you just have to have a a balanced view, and, you know, but also take into account that most of the media will will be piling in, and it is important to push back with the truth. You're not making stuff up. You're just giving... a a view on the ground or giving a platform to activists and people. And just quickly on that, that's why I should have said the first question. The whole point of being a left journalist in a neoliberal context is to use your platform as best you can to give a platform to causes, people uh, and movements, which are otherwise airbrushed or demonized. Uh, and, And that's your role, basically, effectively, or one of your main roles in any case, um, and and ideas as well, which are otherwise demonise an airbrush. But that doesn't mean you do that always uncritically, but you have to bear in mind the democratic responsibility you have.
0: Bringing on from that question, onto you Kimberly, but bring this on as well, just to add another element to it, how do you also manage your own... Uh, Basically, your own—I mean, ultimately, a certain bias. I'm not—I'm not afraid of biases, by the way. I think everyone has their own lens through which they look at things. Um, and so, when you're part of, when you're writing about something, or when you're asked to comment on on something that you've have lived experience on, how do you balance this, uh, this, these two roles between I've experienced this and I have to write about it, as well as what Sarah was asking just a minute ago.
3: So, from the um, talking about movements and critiquing them. I think there's also thinking about where you make that critique um, and whether it's um, an outlet which is going to platform in good faith and want to start a conversation about an interrogation of our social movements or if it's going to be an outlet that's going to use it as a bat to hit the whole movement with. So my friend Minnie wrote about Extinction Rebellion um, and its lack of like intersectional lens. But she did that in outlets which she knew were um, wanted to have a positive discussion, which would then hopefully make the people within that movement rethink um, their approach. Um, reading the comments underneath it, some people really did um, want to engage and rethink, and some people doubled down and were furious that we were diverting away from the emergency that is happening, but then, which begs the question you know, who is that for? Who are we we trying to build this future for? Um, And it it does, it turns people of colour off. Like, definitely with the um, EU um, referendum debate, every time someone makes a a very, um, just, like, embarrassing... I was trying to think of a better way to say it, but, like, an embarrassing take... um, definitely anything that centers whiteness or anything that talks about freedom of movement in a way that like we don't want our rights as Europeans to be reduced to the level of these ethnic minorities who have been like dealing this for ages like the Windrush people we don't want to be treated the way they are I just you just want to switch off and it makes you kind of withdraw from that movement so I think interrogation can be difficult but it's really necessary Otherwise, you're going to lose people who actually need these movements the most. And then it's a question of who they're really for. Um, To the second point about talking about um, things that impact you.
0: I was particularly thinking about because you write about sex and and dating and having the the fact that I also write about those. I also often find myself in a position in which I need to decide, okay, am I writing about this as a reporter? How much do I put my own lived experience through this? I mean, like because it is a constant process of managing it. How do you how do you do that?
3: So I only like to use personal experience if I think I can make a wider point. I didn't always do this. I definitely, my entry kind of into journalism was through a lot of some really quite cringe on reflection personal essays, which I hope no one ever finds, ever, (laughs) Um, which are kind of like 50% therapy, 50% um, telling a story. But now I try and only use it if I think it can bring people in to make something that can otherwise be a bit dry, have a wider appeal, um, and connect with people more. Um, I don't want to just be right, a lot of my personal life is online, it is. Do you feel do you feel that it's something that happens a lot more to women than
0: men? I don't know. Like, I mean, obviously we have two men on the, on the panel, but I wonder if, as a woman, you also then suddenly ask a lot more to ask about, you know, much like women do a lot more emotional labour and in our society, societally speaking, collectively speaking, than than men are asked to do. If that's also how it reflects itself within journalism, do you do you feel that's part of that?
3: I think so, actually. Um, Mika from Galdem wrote something on this Caroline, Caraway okay. thing. Um, who, Check it out! I had this morbidly
0: or. fascinating.
3: It was. I did. I you know I, I read the whole cut piece on the way to work. Um, and can I just? I, I'll just
0: explain. It's an American uh, Instagram influencer, one of the very first ones. Turns out that it was all kind of ghost written, and it became a sort of like for anyone who reads it, it's all about how it's navel gazing. You yourself are like sort of enwrapped in this story. It's nothing at all, but it became huge because she was making lots of money out of not doing very. Much work at all, so sorry, yeah. And you wrote a a brilliant piece about it.
3: But I think there is, then there was a lot of discussion about the role of personal essays within journalism and the purpose of it. But it is a way in for a lot of women into journalism um, in a way that I don't think it is for men. And you do also open yourself up to a lot of critique, which then can become very personal because they're not just criticizing your writing or your political position, they're attacking you as an individual. And I have definitely had that before. Also, the people you're writing about will block you. And they don't want to be your friend anymore, probably. But I think it is something that is asked of women to kind of give a lot of themselves, um, to tell a story in a way that I don't see men being asked in the same way. But the flip side of that is that I did find a lot of personal writing really cathartic. um, And it's been hugely beneficial. And now that I know some people at different outlets I can write about other things so yeah I did have to talk about and I wanted to write about race and sex and dating and what that was like for me Um, but from doing that I can now also write about things that have nothing to do with that so I don't have to write about race all the time and I think a lot of people use it as a way in via lifestyle and then it gives you the contacts and then the platform to be able to talk about other things that also interest you. That's great. And we'll have our first, oh, last, I mean, not first.
0: First, obviously not. Our last question from uh, the audience. Uh, Tom had a question. I think he's sitting around there. And then after this round, we'll open up to questions from everyone who's here right now. And I'll look you in the eye and ask you to be very intimate with me when you ask a question. Go on, Tom.
1: I feel really bad asking this question because we've gone a whole talk without mentioning the B word. yeah i know i'm so so sorry oh god yeah everyone hates me but recently uh on a recent episode of tisky sour michael walker and Aaron starting were talking about the importance of staying on message and how well bernie sanders does that and is
0: bernie sanders the b-word
1: oh yeah 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 that's it um, yes yeah um, on. Okay should that's we just fine. leave it there shall yeah, we that's yeah, great. yeah great question yeah um i'm sorry i'm gonna have to finish um and how we should all do that from everyone, from like activists and you know labour members, uh, through to journalists, through to you know right up to the top. Um, my worry is that this whole fucking Brexit debate <laughs> makes that almost impossible. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Okay. Sorry, was that not clear?
2: Yeah, sorry. In what sense? Sorry, I've
1: got um, how
0: do you stay on As message? As
1: in, yeah, if if you know how Bernie will go, they'll say, oh, you know, what do you think about? xyz and he's like oh yeah that's bad but what i'm really worried about is like wall street and you know uh, yeah. how is is that really hard when this just watch your brexit position over and over and over again sense, yeah.
0: yeah uh you mentioned it already once. The B word has been mentioned once already. So I'll start with you, Kimberly. The Bernie or the Brexit one? The Brexit, I'm the afraid. The Brexit one. Or how to stay on, stay on, how we stay on message. If we must stay on message now, how do we stay on message when we find ourselves, certainly in this country, in such a, a, a moment in which, yeah, no matter how, what do you want to say, they'll spearhead the, um, the, the biased
3: media. So people do love to ask you about Brexit. And um, I got the weirdest request, actually, about Brexit recently from an outlet asking, the debate was, would you date your Brexit opposite? But um, I didn't have strong enough opinions. (laughs) But what that question actually is, is would you date someone who has similar values to you? But because everything is through a Brexit lens, they were just like, how can we make this about Brexit? Is that
2: Michael Segloff who did that?
3: Is that, is that who did
2: it? I think it was. Ah. Oh, blessed. Great guy. This is irrelevant to everyone here, I've just realised. No one cares. Just trying <laughs> he, to picture the piece.
0: I was thinking worse than that. I was wondering if they were asking if you'd date Nigel Farage. Absolutely fucking not. No, not like, a chance. No.
3: But then not. if you go on and say, I would date someone that voted differently to me in Brexit, then you're going to get trolled as a bigot. So you have to be careful with how you pitch it. But back to the actual question... Um, They do teach you, I've done media training, so they teach you how to move from that point and do that like kind of swivel thing where you can move away. Um, And I just tend to do that. You engage with the point, but then you'll just say what we're actually here to talk about is X. And because I mostly talk about race, um, they don't, it's not as much of an issue because no one sees things intersectionally at most outlets so they'll either ask you to come on to talk about (laughs) still not looking intersectionally at things the one one good thing about it is that um they won't bring you on if it's about brexit they tend to just leave you because they're like oh you do a fringe thing you talk about a fringe issue and we're gonna get like the real serious people who know about politics to come on and talk about brexit so it's not as much of an issue but if it does come up you can just use it to try and flip to something else
0: how do you deal with it, Simon? I wanna I wanna ask extra questions on this point too, and so like I'll bring you on now. How do you deal with it when people ask you like, oh yeah yeah, yeah. You, you've done you've covered social movements in Britain. What about Brexit? Uh,
4: I mean I don't know if never I never mind at...
0: austerity, poverty, people being homeless. What about Brexit?
4: Yeah, Brexit sucks. It's such a like drag. Um, <laughs> like
0: and it's been going on for so long.
4: Yeah, I don't really know if I have any issues with staying on message because I don't really do that that's not you really just,
0: you just blank it straight out
4: well no that's but the, that's the answer just don't well no but if the question is like how do you stay on a labor message that does not
2: no, no that's not that's what i thought it was i think it was about the things you want to talk about and not be distracted uh... that's how i got them.
4: i mean it works both ways because
0: if you what you want to talk about is labor then also that mm. hmm hmm <laughs> A question uh, to go home and think about.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like um, a, a media talking head, so like I don't really have to deal with that n- that nimbly. I just have to try and not, you know, try and work on other things as well as Brexit, if you know what I mean. Basically,
0: don't feed the trolls, basically.
4: Yeah, well, just I don't know. I, th- I think I think like obviously Brexit sucked all the air out of the political conversation, mm. and there's one side of that which is like, well, yeah, because it's extremely important in the future of our country, but there's also like other things going on that still need talking about. Um, and I think it's just kind of important to keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, I'm not like a media talking head, so I don't have to sort of do that live on air and do those gymnastics.
0: Media talking head. Yeah. I mean, with, with hi, yeah, uh, hi. I could see you all.
2: Yeah, I mean Brexit. I, I thought of Brexit is like this really obnoxious guy clashing symbols. He follows you everywhere. Whatever you try and say, clashes them louder. Um, yeah, th- you've got to be careful how you do this because if you want to talk about other issues, which aren't about um, uh, tariff-free access to the single market and the customs union, uh, which is uh, not actually what I got interested in political issues for. I don't know about everybody else. Uh, you've got to be careful because the classic. Caricatured politician answer is. I think what your viewers really want to hear is, and that really winds me a lot. But what I do is go. We can't understand the crisis we're in without looking at what Theresa May herself called the burning injustices before she threw more petrol on them. And and and, but th- that we can't understand the crisis that's enveloped our country the brexit crisis without thinking about the longest squeeze in living standards since the napoleonic age we can't understand it without a housing crisis we can't understand it without the industries that were ripped out of entire communities leaving them bereft of any form of hope you know we can't think of uh, we can't think of it with how, how migrants and refugees have been systematically scapegoated for all the injustices and crimes caused by the powerful. We can't think of it without looking at the crash caused by the financial sector, which happens to bankroll the Conservative Party. That's not changing the topic. It's ridiculous to think about this current crisis and turmoil without thinking about all of these injustices. So, for me, the issue is, whenever I try and talk about it, is to say, and I will fight, not literally although tempted sometimes, with the interviewer when they say, you know, oh, that's going off topic. It's not going off topic. It is the absolute core of the topic. And and the problem we've got as a country is because... You know, often media coverage of Brexit has let us down so badly by instead of looking at, you know, treating it as a Westminster soap opera, which is how it's portrayed, rather than looking at the grand social crises that have enveloped this country. And the way some, particularly, you know, and I voted and campaigned for Remain and Reform and would again, but the way some sensuous Remainers treat Brexit is this thing which just landed from a clear blue sky. And oh, can't we just go back to the London Olympic opening (laughs) ceremony? And I'm not saying that ceremony. I'm not saying it wasn't a great ceremony it was brilliant but the portrayal it as this... debatable but it was like 2012 was this ut- well it was fine 2012 was this utopian world where everyone was happy and Britain was great and you know they put nurses glorifying nurses a few months after the NHS bill for privatisation being put through when nurses and other healthcare workers were already having their wages squeezed uh, which had driven some now to food banks uh, the wind. Britons, again, valorized in that ceremony, two months after the hostile environment had been introduced. You know, this was a time of, you know, the one. if you want to think about 2012 and, and, and uh, ceremonies, then think about the Paralympics, when George Osborne was booed by thousands of people for a reason, because Britain was in turmoil. So we've got to push back on this narrow Brexit idea that is all about customs unions and single market, and what's going on in the Conservative Party and Labour divisions, when we've got understand the crisis we're in without looking at the injustices that led it to this point and it's bad journalism not to do it in my opinion.
0: Absolutely, here, here Ran it over, sorry. What a way Thank you so much the three of you for enduring the question time side and now what a way to open it up to you guys, I can see a hand already at the front. Thank you so much for coming do come to speak to me at the end if you have any questions and go have yourselves a drink, thank you very much And thank you guys.